Get the little ones, sit back, relax, and listen to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Manhunt, Part Two. Are you sure about this, Harry? Parker asked, looking at the expanse of green in the valley below him. Sure, I'm sure, Detective Parker. The boy replied indignantly. I keep telling you, kids tell other kids things they don't tell grown-ups. Mac Tully grinned, and Parker was sure that they were both thinking the same thing. That Harry Kelly would not be able to use that old line for very much longer. The boy had been in the Red Pandas network as long as anyone could remember, first as a runner, then as a spotter, and maybe the best in the network at that. He had to be twelve or thirteen now, and growing like a weed. What's so funny, Mister Tully? Harry said, his eyes narrowing in suspicion that he was the butt of some joke. He had grown up surrounded by an army of crime-fighting substitute brothers, and it was a lot for a kid to live up to. He was constantly on the lookout for signs that he was being treated like a mascot. Not a thing, short pants, Max said, raising his hands defensively. I was just imagining what the red panda will say when he finds out we've all gone for a stroll in the woods. I told you. Some kids saw two men chained at the wrist, running down through the park towards the trees. The poet knows he can follow the river right up out of the city. Harry crossed his arms and looked as hard-nosed as he could, which might have been intimidating if he were a foot taller and had some meat on his bones. It's the long, slow way out of town, and he knows that too. Max said, "His men died busting him out, and he's got no network left." My money still says he went south. Parker nodded. Those are the safe odds, he agreed. But Andy, Harry Kelly groused. Let me finish, Harry. Parker said, "Those are the safe odds, but we already have dozens of agents and the entire Toronto Police Department playing those odds. Don't forget Tank's boat." Mac grinned. And we have Tank Brody in a boat. Parker agreed with a roll of his eyes. I think the safe odds are pretty well covered. We have one lead, and it points north. We have to follow it. Just the three of us? Harry asked, his eyes wide. No, not just the three of us. Parker shook his head and flipped Harry a coin. Call Mother Hen, Harry. Tell her Agent Fifty One is activating the reserves. We need all hands into the valley before the poet slips through our fingers. The man called Seven tripped and fell again. The cold water of the river shallows biting into him, and this time he could not help but curse. The chain connecting his arm to the other escaped prisoner pulled taut, and the man pulled Seven to his feet. I see you're through pretending to be mute, at least. The man with the orange hair said, "Though how curious that you do not swear in Polish." Seven froze for a moment, wondering exactly what he had said. He was too well trained for such a stupid mistake. There was too much invested in his ability to assimilate. But this operation had gone wrong from the start. 
picked up before he could reach his new papers. The men set to free him on behalf of the organization had been killed in the process. And he had spent hours bound to this man, who seemed to know or guess much more than he should. Seven would probably have to kill him, once they were no longer chained together. Except there was an open question as to who would kill whom. The man with the orange hair was older and softer than him, but he seemed tireless, as if driven by some greater purpose, some mission that Seven could only guess at. If so, it was more of a plan than Seven had, and if he was to remain free, he would need to play whatever part he could in it. The man eyed Seven and seemed to sense his resolution. Allow me to introduce myself, he said. They call me. They call you the poet, Seven said, recovering his breath. You are one of these colorful, I don't know how to say the word. The word is supervillain, my dear fellow, the poet said, his mustache curling in delight. And if you are to blend in here whilst you undertake whatever mischief you intend, you will do well to learn it and use it. For I am the very man of the age. You say colorful, as if it is an insult. But know you that I glory in my uniqueness. I am the poet, the greatest wordsmith of this or any age. And when I have set aside these current circumstances, I shall prove it once again, with a campaign of crime such as this city has never seen. I don't see the connection, Seven said. You will, the poet said with a crooked smile. You bear a passing resemblance to a young Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and as such, I would offer you gainful employment as a henchman. But you are already otherwise occupied, I perceive. What makes you say that? Seven said, his eyes narrowing. Well, those were not my men that attacked the prison bus, the poet beamed. And of the other five men on that transport, four were actual nobodies, and one was trying very hard to pretend to be one. I don't know why anyone should play at that, but it is interesting. Don't be too curious, Seven glared. It isn't healthy. Hmm, yes, the poet said with a modest wave of his hand. I suppose that you might kill me while still chained to me. That would end your little escape awfully quick. The fact is that you're the luckiest spy in the whole wide world. I'm quite certain that the powers that be are more concerned with me than you. They probably think that graceless machine-gun attack was for my benefit. How does that help me like this? Seven asked, rattling the chain that bound them together. The poet smiled and bowed his head. If you can persevere another half a mile along the river's edge, and then... A short distance into the woods beyond, we might see if we can't do something about that as well. The 
flying squirrel kept her arms folded across her chest as she raced through the underground tube like a bullet, propelled by a relentless tide of compressed air. She had started her journey far downtown and emerged three times at junctions, switching pneumatic tubes to reach the line that would carry her to where the red panda was waiting. If the message were to be believed, Kit Baxter Fenwick, the woman behind the mask, was still hoping that somehow she had her wires crossed, but she was almost sure that she hadn't. This day just kept getting stranger. Kit could feel the cushion of air building ahead of her to slow her approach and knew that she was nearing the end of the line. Her ears popped a little from the change in pressure, but she landed softly as a cloud, the chamber hissing as it opened before her. She could still see almost nothing, but knew from experience that the door lay directly in front of her. The flying squirrel emerged from what appeared to be a storage shed within a carefully concealed private aeropad in the north of the city. She could see her husband across the field, pushing a two-seated contraption of his own design out of its hangar. He waved, pretending to be casual and failing. There were not many things that August Fenwick was not good at, but being casual was definitely one of them. She could tell at thirty yards away that he was in a hurry. Kit shook her head and pulled her goggles down in preparation. Any luck? he called, forcing the autogyro to roll in a tight circle to face the nose into the wind. About the usual amount, she admitted ruefully. The poet has no known associates out of lockup, none of his hideouts have been disturbed, and neither have any of the loot caches he has squirreled away for a rainy day which probably means that there are many more that we don't know about, the Red Panda said, running quickly through his own pre-flight checklist as if it were a terrible inconvenience. Probably, she agreed. For a loony, he's awful well prepared. But this feels like something different. This far into an escape master plan without so much as a rhymed couplet? It's hinky, Gus. It's almost like this isn't even his plan. The breakout, the Red Panda said, as if it were occurring to him for the first time, which was not something that she witnessed regularly. You might be right. Certainly the violence is outside of his norms, but even if it's true, no one in the rogues' gallery improvises better than the poet, and our best hope of bringing him in is to do it quickly. Which involves zipping through the air in an autogyro? She batted her eyelashes behind her goggles. Won't that cause a traffic backup, what with all the rubbernecking and such? Parker has diverted teams into the valley to the north, he replied. They're trying to cover major exit points and run a manhunt, but it's a lot of territory. And not a lot of daylight left, she said unhappily, looking at the fast-fading October sky. How are we even supposed to ride shotgun over a foot race if we can't even see? "'Ah,' he said, touching the side of his mask and causing the blank eye lenses to flash momentarily. "'If only someone terribly clever would invent something to deal with that.' She sighed, just a little. "'Super,' she said. Seven sat and drummed the fingers of his free left hand, not for the first time. He was warmer and drier than he would have thought possible just a few hours ago, 
but he was no closer to his goal, and he was growing impatient. Still, he had to respect the ingenuity of the man that fate had shackled him to this morning, who might yet be the only hope his mission had of success. The poet had brought them both to a hobo camp that was almost a full-on shantytown, hidden within the forest valley that divided the great city. Long fed by the desperation of hard times, this was a sort of forgotten colony of lost souls, and the poet had a general idea of how to use them for his own purposes. Knowing that his career path might one day bring him to these very circumstances, he had hidden a cache of loot nearby, and offered the self-appointed mayor of this settlement instructions on how to retrieve it, in exchange for shelter, food, and water. The spoils were modest, but they were more than these people had seen in years, or ever expected to again. And the camp had buzzed with excitement. It had been then that the old pirate had made his grand offer. A dozen more caches were scattered throughout the valley, and he would provide instructions on how to retrieve them, but only to a series of two-man teams, who had all set out under cover of darkness this very night. And, to sweeten the offer, there was a final treasure, larger than any of the others awaiting the first team to finish their quest. Who could resist the first ray of hope that had been offered in years? The men of the camp knew they were aiding an escape, if only indirectly, but they had no great love of the law, and were in no position to argue the point, and so they had accepted the terms. And now... They waited, flocked outside the hut in pairs, ready to chase their fortunes. Seven waited as well, but unlike the men outside, he was tired of it. Why is this taking so long? he hissed. The police will be on top of us any minute. My dear misguided boy, the poet said, not looking up from the paper scraps on which he was writing furiously. The police in this sordid little burg are of no concern to us. As long as we choose the path less taken, we will never be found. But we are being hunted by a predator, and it is against him that I set my sword. I understand what you're doing, Seven snapped, sending out enough two-man teams to confuse the trail for anyone searching for us. I just don't see how that helps us. That is because you have never run from someone with night vision, the poet said, quickly counting iams on his finger as he wrote, in an autogyro. Seven whistled quietly. This one they call the Red Panda? The poet nodded. And his vicious little paramour, yes. They would be on top of us almost at once, but with a dozen targets to choose between... We have every chance of slipping through their fingers. We hand out these clues, our hosts set off at speed, and you and I slip away as unobtrusively as two escaped felons might do. Seven nodded. It was just ridiculous enough to work. But why do all of the clues have to be poems? He said, exasperated. The poet raised a single finger on his bound left hand. They are not merely poems. Each one is a respeto, 
an Italian short form comprised of two quatrains written in iambic tetrameter. But why? Seven said with a clench of his fist. To make them difficult to solve, the poet smiled. So they will continue to chase the tales all over the valley all night long, rather than find us and kill us for sending them on a wild goose chase. Seven was shocked. There are no treasures? The poet scowled. I do dislike a liar. But at some point, willful blindness surely is more to blame. I had one hidden cache nearby for such an emergency, but another twelve. <laughs> it is extempore from my mother wit. Seven laughed in spite of himself. Poet, you truly have an impressive mind. And you understand the strengths and weaknesses of these masked lunatics who force their will upon your city. The poet sniffed. Oh, is that what they do? Seven did not seem to have heard. I begin to think you might be useful. The poet paused, his pen aloft. Oh, yes? he asked. As you have gathered, I am not a Pole. You're a German, the poet smiled. A spy. An ugly word, Seven shook his head. I am here to help your city to prepare to take its place in the world to come. How generous of you, the poet nodded. My country only seeks to address the wrongs of history, Seven said gravely, and to ensure a bright future for our countrymen and allies. You could be among those allies. When Britain falls and her colonies sue for peace, the price of that peace will bring a change in circumstances for those that have oppressed you and your genius. And what does it offer me? the poet asked, his eyes blazing. That depends on what you offer in exchange, Seven said. Work with me. The connections and resources I bring, together with your talents and your knowledge of our foes, we could be unstoppable. And so we shall, dear boy, the poet agreed with a flourish of his pen. So we shall. You're finished, then? Seven asked, standing up. One more, the poet corrected, reaching for a thirteenth scrap of paper. And then the chase is on. Hours later, the two men sat under the footing of an enormous bridge, breathing hard. There had been close calls in the black of night, with a quiet whooping sound of the flying machine circling overhead, choosing the wrong targets. But that had been hours earlier. With the first faint colors of dawn beginning to show themselves in the cold morning sky, Seven began to smell the air of freedom. Come on, my friend, he said, trying to shift the poet into motion. We have rested long enough. It will be daylight soon, and we must be rid of these chains. Seven held his bound arm high and tried to pull his new partner to his feet with it. Allow me. A woman's voice sang from nowhere, and something round and metallic whistled through the air and cut the chain neatly in two, sending Seven staggering back a short distance. What in blazes? 
Seven said, whipping his head around for any sign of their foes in the lingering darkness as a mocking laughter echoed against the metal beams above them. The Red Panda, but how? His eyes met those of his supposed partner. There was just enough light to make out the cruel expression within them. Seven snorted. Poet, you swine. I do dislike a liar, but a traitor is something far worse, the villain said grandly. The last of the laughter was lost in the wind, and an enormous man in a gray coat and hat stepped forward as if from nowhere, flinging a projectile as he did so. Get down, his voice barked, and the poet obeyed. The device burst forth with choking white vapor, which filled the man called Seven with an unearthly cold. For a moment, he staggered on his feet, trying to meet the gaze of the terrible blank eyes that stared from the bright red domino mask. He was unconscious before he fell, and he fell hard and knew no more. The flying squirrel dropped from the sky and landed deftly near where the poet lay. All right, Bright Eyes, you're not fooling anyone. On the contrary, the poet beamed, I am fooling almost everyone. Almost, the Red Panda agreed. I fooled that one, the poet said with a contemptuous wave of his finger. He never noticed me writing the poem that brought you here, or the instructions that got it to you. Yep, you're full of surprises, all right, the flying squirrel said chucking him on the shoulder and pulling him to his feet. I don't see why the knockout gas was necessary, the poet huffed, brushing dirt from his coveralls as he rose. We thought we'd bag this one before he could take cyanide, the squirrel said sweetly. Dear me, what a world, the poet said, twisting his mustache. I am encouraged by this change of heart, poet, the mystery man nodded. I can put in a good word with please don't. The reply came quickly. I wouldn't last ten minutes if they thought I had gone soft on you. Not that I have. When I next slip from my bondage, it will be under my own power, and with a volley of villainous verse that will destroy the both of you once and for all. There was an awkward pause. So much for having a moment, the squirrel muttered. Orphan aside, Red Panda, the poet said gravely. It may not seem like it just now, but... I actually considered his offer, and many of my brethren in the sanitarium would have accepted it gladly. I think things are becoming rather more complicated for you. The Red Panda's eyes met his partner's. I hate it when he's right, he said. You have been listening to the Red Panda Chronicles number two, Manhunt. Written by Greg Taylor and read by Greg Taylor and Clarissa Dinerlanden for the Dakota Ring Theater Podcast. New content creation is powered by Patreon. Look for the links in the show notes to find out how you can help support the content that you love. Dakota Ring Theater, the sound of adventure. Hello, I'm John Bell of Bells in the Battery, along with my associates, Arnie Kunch... I can introduce myself, thank you very much. All right. Hi, I'm Arnie Kunchfine. That's it? That's it. And also, do you want me to introduce you, Brad? Well, of course, Mr. Bell, that's your job as host. Thank you, Brad. 
And I'd like to introduce Brad. Hold it. What? Here's your script. Script? Well, <laughs> you gotta know what to say. All right. <clears throat> and introducing Brad Montworth, ace salesman, incomparable public relations expert, and, of course, unrivaled attorney at law. No, come on, you know how to say it, Mr. Bell. Unrivaled attorney, attorney at, at law. law. Oh, Mr. Bell, you shouldn't say those things. You make me blush. Can I do my introduction over again? No. We're here for an important reason. Very important. Indeed. If you think you deserve significant financial compensation, call Brad Motworth, attorney, attorney at, at law. law. Oh, boy. At 555 No, 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 no. We're here to remind everybody to take steps to avoid the coronavirus. Yeah, don't catch it. Because there's no one you can sue. Wash your hands thoroughly and keep social distancing. What? Social distancing. One more time. Stay about six feet away from everybody else. Right, very good. Oh, I gotta wash my hands thoroughly. I don't want to get me this corona. Ooh, keep your distance now. Socially. I want to keep feeling fine corona. Never gonna stop getting squirts from my Purell. I'm always gonna buy all the toilet paper that they sell. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, Corona. Bye, Corona. Don't get no closer, huh? Beat it, huh? Far enough where I can't see your eyes, Corona. An illness history is not for me. Uh uh-uh. uh. Don't want to try your COVID on for size, Corona. Never gonna touch. Stay away. My epidermis never wants to be close to where that nasty germ is. Bye, 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 bye. Woo. Fly Corona! Fly Corona! Captain Fly Corona! Pumpkin Pie Corona! Now wait a minute! Fly Corona! Goodbye Corona! Good riddance!